0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yes, Lord, uh, the growth of our budget indicates that um, there is a lot of health in this church and that um, people are excited about the work that you're doing, not only here, but throughout the world. And I pray that that excitement will continue to grow. All right, we're looking at Acts 15, verse 36, and then we're going to move on into Acts 16. I entitled this, God's Strategy in Human History. As it turns out, God has a plan that He's executing throughout the world. And He's called each and every one of us to take a part in that plan. What we're going to talk about tonight is this concept of personal ministry. Now, the word ministry is just a churchy word that you hear thrown around, but the word ministry in Greek is the word diakonia, which literally means service. So to involve yourself in ministry means that you are involving yourself in serving God, devoting yourself to it. And God expects all of his followers to engage in serving him and others. Contrary to what you see in the modern American church today, where people are mainly pew sitters or people who are there to enjoy a show or to feel blessed, God calls on us to actually do something. And He doesn't want us to just sit there and take from the people around us and expect people to love us. Instead, He wants us to go out and to love others. And for that love to actually expand out into the world. And we're not just to keep this to ourselves in some sort of creepy holy huddle or something like that. And so God has set us out on a mission to share the love of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And for those of us who have given ourselves over to that mission, we know how exciting that can be. Now, some of you might be wondering either because maybe this is your first time here, or because maybe you're new and you're sort of investigating whether this is something you really want to throw in on. You know, why would we dedicate ourselves to serving God? I think the motivation centers upon what God has done for us. The, pi- the Bible teaches that, you know, God has sacrificed so much for us to the extent that he sent his own son Jesus to come and die for us, and that out of the overflow of gratitude that we feel and love, that we naturally feel this inclination to go and serve God and other people. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. He says, For Christ's love compels us. That's really a strong language. God's love actually compels us Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So the basis for a serving Christ has to do with his death on the cross. And, you know, if you're an investigator, if you maybe are trying to figure out what Christianity might be all about, it really boils down to this right here that there is a barrier between us and God because of our sin or the things that we've done wrong. But Jesus came and actually died in order to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. And so once we receive Christ, we then experience the love of God. And then Paul says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So once we give our lives over to Christ, something really changes where we no longer live for ourselves, but now our lives are centered on what Christ has done for us and serving him. Okay, with that, we want to look at this passage and try to distill four principles of ministry as we read through the second missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas undertake. Starting in Acts 15, verse 36 and 37. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. And Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. So remember, there was a previous missionary journey and they went throughout you know, Europe, parts of Europe, and uh, came back to Antioch. And along the way, they were establishing small churches that were growing. So Paul and Barnabas were concerned that these churches were shaky, and they wanted to establish these churches, so they decided to go back. As we'll see, they also planted a few other churches. Now, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin John Mark along, But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued to work with them there. Their disagreement was so sharp that they actually separated. And so Barnabas decided that he was going to take John Mark with him and then he sailed off to Cyprus where he was from. So there was a sharp disagreement that arose between Paul and Barnabas such that they actually separated. And Luke, actually doesn't provide us any commentary on what happened like in terms of their discussion. So people try to fill in the blanks and have argued that Paul was actually in the wrong here. That even though Luke never explicitly says that, that Paul made a misstep. Because after all, Jesus says that we should forgive one another. And Paul was being such a hardliner here that he wouldn't forgive John Mark for deserting them in their earlier missionary journey. Now, the event that they're talking about took place in Acts chapter 11 and we're told by Luke that at one point during their journey, John Mark just left. And we know the terrain that they were traveling in. There were bandits, there were robbers at every turn and also they were facing the Taurus Mountains having to climb over that scale the Taurus Mountains in order to reach these areas that they were going to travel to. And so at one point, John Mark's like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to do that. And deserted him. So Paul felt like this abandonment was serious enough that he didn't want to take John Mark on this second missionary journey. Now, I'm not sure that I side with the commentators or most commentators on this, Because there's actually indication that later on, Paul and Barnabas had a working relationship. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he refers to Barnabas as a guy that he sent to Corinth to establish the church there. So there were still partners in ministry. And then later we find out too that he mentions John Mark in the book of Colossians and says... Tell Timothy to bring along John Mark, for he is useful to me in my ministry. And so at least by that time, he built enough trust in John Mark to feel like he can start working with him again. I believe that what happened here was that there was a disagreement in their ministry, but it wasn't because there was unrighteous conflict or that Paul was being ungodly. But it was over a ministry issue, and sometimes, you know, even with your good friends, you come to a place where you can't agree fully on some of these issues because they're a gray area. And so they decided to part ways. And as it turns out, this was actually strategic, that God used this split in order to reach more people. Well, Paul chose Silas, another uh, disciple, and and he left the believers and entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care then he traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches there now it's interesting if you study the life of Paul we're never told in the New Testament that he traveled to the area of Cilicia and Syria like in his missionary journeys you know it's odd that these groups just popped up out of nowhere well there is a significant period in Paul's ministry that seems missing. And biblical scholars refer to this as the lost years of Paul. It spans about a 13 year period from the time he actually received Christ, which I believe would be the best estimate for that would be AD 33, and then the time that he arrives in Antioch, which we read about last week in AD 46. So during these lost years, we don't really have that much information about Paul. And so what commentators actually argue is that during this time period, God was sort of shaving away the rough edges in Paul's character. That God was breaking him in order to make him useful for service. And in order to make anybody of use in his service, it's going to take some time on the order of decades in this case, it took 13 years for Paul. And, you know, most are lucky that he doesn't take the same stand as he did with Moses, where he, he made him go out and for 40 years in the desert. Now, I don't know if I actually believe that. I believe that Paul was, was growing in his faith and that God was actually refining his character throughout this period. But I don't believe that he was just like out in the wilderness seeking enlightenment Or trying to like find his power animal or something like that. (laughs) There are actually some artifacts in the book of Galatians that give us a clue as to what Paul was doing. In Galatians 1, 21 through 23, we're told, After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. And still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. Remember, he was a persecutor of the church. And they knew all they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. So, two things. Paul says that he traveled up to the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, never explicitly saying that he was preaching the gospel there. But, he points out that even by this time when he arrived in Syria and Cilicia, that he was already preaching the, the gospel. And so, when you put the pieces together, it's likely that when he went to Syria and Cilicia, that he was the main driver in planting the churches that then show up later on in the book of Acts. And so he, he was probably the guy who planted these groups. And it makes sense that he would go back there and establish those churches that he already planted. What about in Acts chapter 9, verse 18 and 20? This is right after Paul has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was blinded for some days. We're told that instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes as he regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he indeed is the son of God. So immediately we're told that Paul goes and starts preaching. You know, he wasn't, you know, sitting out in the middle of nowhere meditating, waiting for God. You know, he got right to work. He took action. And I think that this brings us to our first principle of ministry, that God enlists us to carry out his mission as soon as we receive Christ. Christ day one. And that might come as a shock to some of us because most of the time we feel like I don't really know that much. Like I haven't gone to any like seminaries. How am I qualified to go and start serving God? Well, the Bible teaches that God enlists us by giving us the Holy Spirit and he actually empowers us to carry out his work. And of course, you know, we grow in our competence as we learn how to serve God better over the years, studying the Bible, observing people who know what they're doing, getting training. But God wants us to set off on this mission right away. And I think that, you know, for me, when I first came to Christ, this was one of the things that really had a lot of appeal. This is something that really drew me to following God because I remember this sense in my life that I'm not sure what the meaning or purpose of my life is. I just felt this sense of aimlessness. You ever feel that way? Have you felt that way? And God says that we have an opportunity by serving him to give ourselves over to something much greater than ourselves, and that's what I wanted more than anything. Sadly, you see people who have that same idealism, that same drive early on in their lives, that that gets extinguished once they enter their career and their lives get complicated. All of that idealism gets smashed, and yet we see that occasionally burbling up. You know, as people are pursuing career, as they're pursuing gaining more and more money. There's this sense that whatever we're doing to try to make our lives meaningful, either by the things that we do or by the people we surround ourselves with, that there's this sense of dissatisfaction that we just cannot shake no matter what we do. I was just talking to my friend who I've known for a long time now. I know his family pretty well, and at the, at the conclusion of our hangout, I was like, hey, so how's your, how's your mom and dad doing? He's like, oh, you know, my dad's doing good. You know, he's at this stage in his life where he's, you know, nearing 60, and he's got the perfect job. You know, he's making like $120,000 a year, and he has the luxury of working four days a week. And he was expressing to my friend that he thought that, by taking, you know, a day, shaving a day off of his week, his work week, in order to have more free time, that he would enjoy it more. And yet he recounted that he just felt lonely and sad because he thought that he was going to be able to spend more time with his wife and his friends, but then he realized his wife is busy and he doesn't have any friends. You know, he had been chasing this dream, thinking that, you know, getting that perfect career where I'm making big bucks, where I have the the luxury to be able to work less and still make tons of money. That dream that he was chasing turned out to be a mirage at the end of his life. And you know, I think people are actually opening their eyes to this. I was uh, watching a documentary with my wife and it was about these two guys Who were pretty successful and wealthy, but even though they had more money than they knew what to do with, and they had these incredible careers that they worked hard to get, there was still this sense that something was missing in their lives. And meanwhile, their lives were falling apart, they were depressed, and finally, they did something radical they decided to walk away from their ultra-successful career and to start selling all of their possessions. They described the relief that they felt offloading all these things that they didn't need or even care about that were just occupying them. And they also felt how the anxiety and pressure just melted away as soon as they decided to walk away from that rat race that they were running in order to get that next promotion. And, you know, about 45 minutes into this hour and 20-minute long documentary, I, me and my wife were sort of like, we get it. I mean, I don't know if I need to re- watch the rest of this in order to understand what they're going to say. It's pretty much the same thing. And yet it left you wondering, okay, so what's the point? So you give up all of these things and you live more simply but is that the purpose of the life of life right there, to just live simply and have less? I thought to myself, that's not really a direction to move your life in. And I thought to myself, you know, people today they're yearning for real meaning and purpose in their lives. And nothing, really nothing, can match the kind of, of purpose and meaning that God wants to give to us as we carry out his mission. The Bible teaches that we can make an impact in people's lives that are not only going to make their lives better in the next year or 10 years or 20 years, but the Bible promises that we can impact people on into eternity. I mean, what could we possibly give our lives to that would be more important than that? And, you know, for those of us who have experienced this, of having an opportunity to sit down with somebody and to share the message of Christ's love and to see them turn to God in a personal way and in, in an instant watch their eternal lives change their destiny change I mean you can't look at life different you can't look at life the same after that it's different you found something different that really matters well well we're told in, in chapter 16, verse 1 through 3, that Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra. Well, there's a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. And Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. I bet what happened was in Paul's first missionary journey there in Derby and Lystra that. Timothy was probably one of the guys who received Christ. And so sometime later when Paul shows back up in Derby and Lystra, Timothy apparently had taken and and given himself over to serving Christ and was a a genuine worker of God there. And he decided that he was going to take this guy along on his missionary journey. We're told in, uh, I think it's in verse 4, that uh, he went and uh, circumcised Timothy. And uh, that's, okay, that's a little strange. Remember last week we talked about how there was a huge controversy that, that boiled over because Paul was insisting that people didn't need to undergo circumcision in order to become a believer in Christ. And yet here he is in this case, circumcising Timothy? Well, I think the explanation has to do with the fact that Timothy, although his mother was Jewish, his father was a Greek and probably resisted Timothy getting circumcised on the eighth day. And so once he became a Christian, he wanted to be able to first reach the Jewish people, but he knew that he wouldn't get a hearing unless he was circumcised, which I'm not sure how they check that. (laughs) <laughs> You're like, I don't know about you, man. You seem like a poser. Let's step into the back alley. you got to prove it to me. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the point was that, you know, Paul was insisting that, that Timothy do what some people call contextualize. Which, which is really our second principle here, contextualization. It's a big uh, word, $5 word, which just simply means sharing the message of Christ in a specific context. So that means that we are sharing Christ in a way that is sensitive to the culture that we're sharing it with. You know, last week I talked about how offensive it would be if you were trying to talk to a devout Muslim person about Christ while, you know, slamming on a pulled pork sandwich. They would just be like, oh man, I just can't even listen to you as you're smacking on that thing. In the same way, that's what Timothy was doing here is that he was willing to make some sacrifices in order to be more effective in sharing Christ with these people. We see in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 through 22, that Paul says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew in order to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to those to Christ, those who are under the law. And he says, when I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything so that I can save some. In other words, he was trying to break down unnecessary barriers that people might perceive to coming to Christ. And this requires us to be a student of culture. In the late 1800s, a guy named Hudson Taylor set out to share the message of Christ with people in China where Christ was largely unknown. And contrary to what many missionaries had done in the past, he decided to adopt a radical stance on contextualization. Because remember at that time, they were getting people to receive Christ, but also having them uh, wear a European dress and learn European languages. And so they essentially enculturated the people in addition to giving them Christ. Needless to say, not very many people came to Christ voluntarily. And yet, Hudson Taylor decided that he was going to pursue a more radical course, and he decided that he was going to learn Chinese. He started dressing like a Chinese person, eating their food, learning their customs, and he had a huge breakthrough with people in China for Christ. And so likewise, we need to consider in our culture, are there things that we do that are unnecessary barriers to people receiving Christ? We need to constantly evaluate things that we do that are normal to us, but seem really odd to other people in the world. You know, you think about the the church today. Many churches are completely unaware of what a non-Christian person would like or what they think You know, if you go to a church today, nine times out of ten they're gonna have, you know, worship service to begin their meeting. And often they will have, you know, Christian music that you sing along to, and they think it's awesome. They think that non-Christians love this kind of stuff, that they love Christian music. And yet, uh, they have no clue. They have no understanding about what a non-Christian person would be attracted to. They're, they're completely removed from culture. I remember when I first started gaining an interest in Christ, I would show up to a meeting like that, and they would have their singing and worship and praise and all that stuff, you know, with the holy hands in the air and all that stuff. And I just remember I'd be outside in the parking lot, you know, smoking cigarettes and stuff, waiting for it to be done. And then uh, when I heard the music ending, I, you know, went in there and then I started hearing the Bible taught. And I, I liked that part, but I couldn't stand all the other stuff. And so we, we need to consider and evaluate, you know, are the things that we are, that we're doing, Uh, are they barriers to people coming to Christ? Of course, there are some things that are non-negotiables. There are things that the Bible teaches or things that the Bible says we should engage in that we're not going to compromise on. But in the areas that don't matter, you know, why would we unnecessarily alienate people? Well... Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every single day. So they took Timothy along and they started going from town to town. And I'm sure at that moment, Timothy was jumping into the deep end of the pool, learning the craft of serving God. And so this leads us to our third principle, that Paul's ministry was discipleship-based. You know, when we talk about this concept of personal discipleship, it originates from the rabbis. You know, rabbis in the ancient world, whenever they were training up other rabbis, they would pick three or four guys to be their apprentices. And these guys would follow around the rabbi, living with them for a number of years, and they would simply observe and learn from the rabbi as the rabbi would teach the Bible. And also they would, they would gain instruction from their rabbi as well. And this form of teaching was very effective. Because the rabbi, the teacher was able to watch the student as he tried to go out and, and emulate the rabbi. And be able to provide feedback in real time. And so this was really the primary method that the rabbis in the ancient world used. And Jesus also used this as well. I mean, if you look at his ministry, it really centered around the 12 guys, the 12 apostles. And he spent most of his time with these guys. In fact, within the 12, there was even a smaller inner circle of three guys, John, James, and Peter. And these guys became sort of the leading figures of the early church. And so Jesus pursued this as well because he knew that a lot of the things that you do in ministry, they're not things that you can learn in a textbook. You know, They didn't have like, seminaries back then. They didn't have Sunday schools. All they had was discipleship. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have like, classroom instruction. We know from Acts chapter 19 that Paul actually rented out the lecture uh, hall of Tyrannus and had many believers coming to listen to the word of God. But this really represents the primary way that Jesus did his ministry. In fact, he banked his entire ministry on this method of expanding God's kingdom. You know, if you look at the Gospels, there are many instances where the Gospel writers say, and Jesus retreated with his disciples to spend time with them. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of John, 20% of the Gospel of John centers around the last 48 hours of Jesus spending time with his disciples, instructing them about what they would have to do once he was gone. And so Jesus staked his entire ministry on discipleship. And as he was about to ascend into heaven, we're told in Matthew 28 19 through 20, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commandments that I give to you, and and, uh, be sure of this, that I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. So, when you look at this command, what does Jesus tell them to do? What does he tell his disciples to do? To make disciples, right? He doesn't just say, well, go out and share the message of Christ and make sure that people receive it. He says, make disciples. So he envisioned new believers actually coming into maturity in their faith. Again, when you look at the modern church today, there are many Christians who attend church and have attended church for decades and yet remain ignorant of the Bible and are unable to serve God in any way that's uh, really effective. You know, Paul relied on discipleship as the basis for his ministry as well. He talks about his fellow servants or ministers uh, throughout his epistles. And if you tabulate all of the people that he interacted with, presumably the people that he led to Christ personally and worked with and trained, there was, there's about 25 people, as we'll see. And Timothy He tells this. He says, And these things that you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach other people. If you look at it, there are four generations of discipleship going on there. You have Paul telling Timothy, who's to entrust this to reliable people who then are to be qualified to teach others. Four generations. Here's that list of guys. And ladies, too. Notice Claudia and Priscilla. Yeah. Uh, turns out they were also to carry out the work of discipleship as well, as we're told in Titus 2, verse 3, where Paul tells the, the older women to train younger women in good works. So this was a ministry or a strategy that Paul pursued Not only with men, but also with women. And during his 30-year ministry, he probably discipled uh, about 30 people. I'm sure this is in a comprehensive list that he mentions. So the question that we, I guess, are faced with is, why don't people practice this anymore? I think, first of all, you know, in the early church, the clergy's authority expanded. And because of fear that false teaching would ravage the church, the clergy decided to take more and more control and authority, effectively taking the Bible out of the hands of the common person and dictating what kind of interpretation was valid for the church. And once they took the Bible out of the common person's hand, at that point it shattered any possibility of personal discipleship. Also, it takes time. You know, it takes years to work with people. And people have problems. People are complicated. They don't change overnight. I mean, just look at your own life. That's a pretty good example of how hard it's, it's going to be and how much time it takes. You know, it took me, I think, uh, over five years of following God before I actually started leading for God. And uh, I'm glad that it took that long because I needed every bit of that. And so it takes time. And, you know, you think about this. In the modern church today, typically a denomination will put a pastor, assign a pastor to a church, a smaller church, and they're assigned to go in there and grow that church. And if they do well, then they'll be assigned to maybe a bigger church, a mega church, where then they become the senior or lead pastor. Now, why would they ever pursue discipleship as a strategy when you need immediate results, whereas discipleship, you know, pursuing that as a strategy, you're going to see results 10 years from now, not within the next two or three years. And so obviously a lot of people don't really invest a lot of time into it because it's just, it, it, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of work. Also, it often leads to frustration and highlights our incompetence. You know, you're sitting with your friend that you're trying to help grow spiritually, and they drop the bomb on you about some problem that they have that you're just like, oh man, that is so crazy, so freaky, I've never heard of anything like that. (laughs) This is just obviously way over my head. I don't know what to even say right now. And it leads to frustration. A lot of times we're working with people and they'll take, you know, three steps forward and two steps back. It, it, It can be pretty maddening. You know, where we're slamming our head up against the wall, like, what do I do next? I don't even understand. You know, it also takes a lot of investment. This isn't something that you're going to be able to accomplish, you know, one hour a week. If you really want your influence to rub off on someone, it's, it's going to require you spending lots of time with them. Several times a week, maybe, with that person, talking to them, praying with them, instructing them. Of course, this really challenges our priorities. You know, most people today who put career and making money first on the top of their priority list are thinking to themselves like, what? I don't have time for that. I've got things to do. I'm busy. You know, people are not going to want to sacrifice for this. And so it raises the question, why would anybody in their right mind go for something like this? And really, it comes down to whether or not we believe in this principle of multiplication. Let me give you an example. You know, imagine you had a duplicating church of about 100 people. You know, you also have, on the other hand, what you might call a rapid-growing church of 1,600 people. So they, so they, within a couple years, let's say grew to 1,600 people. And every two years, they're able to gain 1,600 more people. That would be pretty amazing by our standards. You know, after two years, the duplicating church, if they decided that they were going to just focus on discipleship, every person out of the hundred are going to just find one person to try to multiply their life of, in, of Christ in. After two years, there would be 200 people. Not too bad. But by comparison, in the rapid-growing church, you would have 3,200 people. Now, you know, imagine if you, from, from year zero, went out a decade. Um, the comparison between the duplicating church and the rapid-growing church would not be that good. You know, you see the duplicating church, it's just real small growth compared to the rapid-growing church. And then by year 10... You look at the duplicating church, and they finally have arrived at the starting point of the rapid-growing church after 10 years, 1,600 people. That's a lot of work for 1,600 people, whereas the rapid-growing church will have arrived at 8,000 people by that time. But if you move out another decade, things start to look a little bit different. When you start duplicating at these numbers, actually the duplicating church starts to outstrip the rapid-growing church that by year 22, the duplicating church will hit 100,000 people by comparison to the 17,000 people in the rapid-growing church. Now, of course, we're speaking theoretically. Of course, those of us who are engaged in trying to share the message of Christ with people know that people... Uh, sometimes are unwilling to follow God or, or are resistant. But it gives you sort of an idea of the power of multiplication. That you can make a profound impact in the world by simply investing in an individual. And that 10 years out, 20 years out, the results might surprise you. The consequences of abandoning this method, first of all, it's led to ignorance. Ignorance. Many people today don't really understand the Bible. They don't know how to explain or answer difficult questions that people have about Christianity or the Bible. And so many American Christians are in a perpetual state of ignorance. Also, it leads to incompetence. You know, again, ministry isn't really something that you could just learn in a classroom or in a textbook. It requires practice. It requires hands-on experience. I like the concept of an apprenticeship because it sort of captures this concept of discipleship. You know, uh, apprenticeships, you know, when you apprentice under somebody, that doesn't mean that you're like inferior to them or that like, you know, they're, they're better than you in some sort of way. It just simply means that they have knowledge that you are trying to learn, a skill that you're trying to be able to, to uh, get. And so, you know, if you think about refurbishing classic cars, I went through this period recently where I was just binging on these car restoration shows on Velocity, <laughs> it's so weird. I don't even know why I was doing it. I have like no desire to own a classic car. I, I don't even know how to work on my own car. And yet, I found myself sitting there at 2 a.m. with bloodshot eyes staring at a screen watching Velocity. Well, after two months of just binging on Velocity, uh, I learned that if you want to have a successful car restoration business, you need somebody who is an expert in uh, metal fabrication. Somebody who can weld, somebody who can bend and shape metal and manipulate it. And you know, if you picked up a textbook on metal fabrication, it's not like if you studied it very carefully that you could p- uh, pick up a welder and weld really well. You know, it's going to require you apprenticing under somebody to teach you that skill. And it's going to require practice. And likewise, when, when we are under discipleship, if we're discipling others, we're able to pick up these skills that otherwise we wouldn't be able to pick up in a classroom. I remember banging my head up against the wall, trying to share my faith with people, and I was just constantly taking the wrong approach with people. And everything changed the moment I I sat and watched somebody who was really good at it and experienced share their faith with somebody. And at that point, I had an aha moment. I was like, man, you know, my my understanding took a quantum leap. And so that's why discipleship is important. And finally, uh, it'll lead to shallowness and a lack of spiritual growth. You know, we need to watch people, you know, live out their faith and emulate that in order to really get a good understanding of what it means to follow God. Well, we're told in verse 6 and 7, Next, Paul and Silas traveled throughout the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Myasia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to go there. Two times we're told that the Spirit prevented Paul and Silas from going into these areas. You know, they were going up north, and then the Spirit prevented them. And they were like, okay, well, we're going to go in this other direction. And then the Spirit prevented them from going there. And so at each turn, it was like the Spirit was guiding them, either blocking them or redirecting them in a different way. And so that leads us to our fourth and final principle that our ministry should be Spirit-led. The Bible teaches that the moment we come to Christ, God comes to live in us. He sends His Holy Spirit to come and make His dwelling inside of us, to provide us guidance, and also to empower us in our ministry. Those of us who have experienced trying to serve God know that feeling. There is this sense that that God is animating our words and there's a surge of excitement that comes from the Spirit working through us in a powerful way. It's something that you can't really describe to someone unless they've experienced it themselves. You know, we talk about having a Spirit-led ministry. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, surfing. Uh, I went out to... Southern California a couple years ago with my family, and while me and my family were out there on the beach, we would watch these people surfing. They were, you know, carving waves or whatever they call it, doing cool things. I thought to myself, you know, what if I wanted to get into surfing? I mean, it would be an undertaking. I'd have to do quite a few things. I'd probably have to go out and get some some stuff, right, like uh, a wetsuit because it's cold in the um, the western waters there. You probably have to get a surfboard and learn how to, like, wax it and stuff. Right? They do that. <laughs> probably be wise, too, to take some surfing lessons, you know, figure out how to, to paddle out there and then, you know, to, to get up. So you could go through all of those things and yet, you know, the one thing that you cannot do, the one thing that... that you're going to have to wait for is the wave, right? You can't produce that. No amount of training, no amount of experience, no amount of, of uh, gear that you buy can ever get you to the place where you're surfing unless there's a wave. And so likewise, we toil in vain if we try to serve God without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about having a Spirit-empowered ministry, first of all, we need to watch. And we need to, to look for the leading of the Holy Spirit in situations. For me, I often encounter really confusing situations in ministry. And I often have to turn to God and ask Him to give me some wisdom and to help me figure out how He's moving in a specific situation. Secondly, we need to learn to listen. You know, when we ask God for wisdom, a lot of times we're, we're talking to God when we pray, but we also have to learn how to take a posture of listening when we're praying, where we engage something that's confusing us, but we also invite God to actually influence our thoughts or to direct us in our thinking. And so we need to listen as well as discerning. You know, I think that we talked about this a few weeks ago when we, when we describe knowing God's will or how to discern God's will, that God will actually give us inner promptings. And that's probably what happened to Paul and Silas, where as they were moving in a direction, they were blocked as they sensed that, you know, maybe God is not leading us in the right, the right direction, or he's not leading us in this direction here. Okay, finally, instead they went through Myasia to the seaport of Troas, and that night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. And then we're going to pick up our narrative next week. <clears throat> I have summary points. Okay, first of all, to summarize you know, you can't give your life to anything more important than serving God. Investing your life in a career that you hope to extract meaning and purpose from. I mean, think about people who are highly successful, who have tons of money. I mean, you know, some of those people that you encounter who have all of those things, you know, they, they seem unfulfilled. I'm surprised, you know, hearing reports or just interviews with these famous sports figures who describe how they just feel like for all the millions of dollars and for all the championship rings that they have, that it just seems like it's not enough. That there's still something missing. Well, as it turns out, God can give us real meaning and purpose by devoting our lives completely to His mission. And you'll never regret doing that. In the almost 20 years now that I've been following God, I never look back with any sort of regret that I wasted my time serving God. If anything, I felt like I wish I would have devoted more. And finally, our ministry should be immediate. We should start it right away. It should be contextualized. It should be discipleship-based, and it should be Spirit-led. Yeah, we're grateful that you uh, use people to... Um, impact the world and to impact us individually. I thank you specifically for the people that you sent in my life, not only to uh, lead me to you, but also to uh, help me grow in maturity. I think about the guy who um, mentored me spiritually, and um, I'm not sure what he saw in me when he uh, first decided to start investing in me, and yet um, uh, it turned out to be a really good thing, Lord. And um, Pray that uh, we would buy into this um, mission that you have uh, called us to do. And um, we thank you that you give us the privilege of serving you in addition to uh, having a relationship with you forever. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.